Um, so this morning we're, we're continuing with our series through the book of Isaiah. We're probably not going to finish this year. We had a break last week, and in fact, uh, next week we'll be doing Isaiah, and after that we've got our combined services. So we haven't quite finished the book, but maybe we'll have a look at part of it early next year. But this morning we're having a look at Isaiah chapter 44. And so if you've got a Bible with you or you've got your Bible on your phone, please turn or scroll uh, to that particular chapter and uh, we'll, we'll put it up on the board uh, as well. This is what Isaiah writes. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, God says. This is what the Lord says, he who made you, he who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jerusalem, who I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It's used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and eats his fill, he also warms himself and says, ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol, he bows down to it and worships, he prays to it and says, save me, you are my god. They know nothing, 
They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I've made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I'll not forget you. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all you, you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, who has made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens. Who spread out the earth by myself who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the prediction of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is God's word. So as Ellis pointed out a couple of weeks ago, the context for Isaiah 40 to 66 is the return from exile uh, God has punished his people through 70 years of exile, and now under King Cyrus of the Persians, God allows his people to come back to the land and rebuild the temple. As we've just read, God fulfills the predictions of his messengers and says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah they shall be built, and of their ruins I will restore them. God is the God of the second chance. And his plan for Israel is that having gone through the destruction of Jerusalem, having gone through the exile, having returned to the land, they will be a purified people who will be his servant. Verse 1, now listen, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I've chosen. And this theme of the servant goes right the way through the rest of the book of Isaiah. God has plans for Israel to be his servant, plans to bless the nations, but sadly, we see in chapters 40 to 48 how Israel doesn't live up to what God has called her to. Uh, some of the Israelites have decided that it would be better to trust the gods of the Babylonians. You know, if the Babylonians had defeated the Israelites in battle, didn't that mean that Marduk, the god of the Babylonians, had defeated Yahweh, the god of Israel? Far better then to trust and worship the idols of Babylon. And so in this passage, God has got two main messages for his people. Uh, firstly, he tells them not to be worried by the fact that they've been defeated by the Babylonians because this was something that was under his control. Verse 8, 
Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? God is in control of history. He says, I'm, Cyrus is simply my servant. And then secondly, God warns his people against idolatry. I think this passage would be quite amusing if it weren't so tragic, because Isaiah, particularly in verses 12 to 20, goes through this whole process of making an idol, and these verses are just so heavy with irony. Um, he takes us from the finished product all the way back to the tree, as it were. So in verse 12, he describes that the metal worker who finishes off uh, this idol. He says, the blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. So here's this man hammering away at this idol. He, he loses his strength. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's getting thirsty and tired. Clearly, he can't create something that will help others when they are weak. Before the metal worker, you had the carpenter who carved out the underlying shape of this idol. And we read the carpenter measures with a line, makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels, marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. We read that this man has even planted a special tree that he'll use for the purpose. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. Isn't it interesting that even though he uh, chooses this special tree, it's the rain that makes it grow. He's got no control over that. And he cuts this tree down in order to make an idol. He hopes the idol will save him, but it's made from a tree that cannot save itself. It's used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm, I see the fire. And from the rest he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. It reminds me of a, of, of a war movie I saw where a guy was getting on the plane with his uh, pilot. He was the co-pilot, and they get in, and he notices that his friend, the pilot, has something in his hand, and he says to him, what is that? And the pilot says, it's my lucky charm. It's my lucky rabbit's foot. And the man replied, well, it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit, was it? <laughs> and as Isaiah concludes in verse 19, no one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel, I even baked bread over its coals, I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Now we may sit back comfortably this morning and think to ourselves, how silly, how primitive, how glad we are that we are so much more sophisticated this morning. And yet... If we're honest, how much of this silliness doesn't find its way into our own lives? So we're going to ask ourselves a, a couple of questions this morning. Let's begin with the first question. What is an idol? In this passage of Scripture, it's very clear, isn't it? It's a piece of wood, a piece of stone, a piece of iron. Those idols are easy to detect, 
we can clearly identify this is an idol. But if you have a look at the book of Ezekiel, which was written around the same time as this, there we read this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these people have set up idols in their hearts. Those kind of idols are a little more difficult to identify, aren't they? Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s, wrote this in his catechism discussion of the first commandment. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. So an idol is where I put my deepest trust apart from God. Timothy Keller has written a, a wonderful book on idolatry. It's called Counterfeit Gods. And in the book, he points out that our modern society isn't that different from ancient society. We just have different idols. He says we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. We may not bow down to the god Eros, but our society practically worships sex. And our idols have their own temples. We have office blocks dedicated to the god of money. We've got gyms dedicated to the god of health, beauty salons dedicated to the goddess of beauty, malls dedicated to the god of materialism, stadiums dedicated to the god of sport. And our idols also have their priests and priestesses, uh, the financial advisor, the personal trainer, the beautician, the coach, with apologies to the beauticians and coaches here this morning. We also make sacrifices to our idols, uh, sacrifices of time and money and relationship. We love our idols, we worship our idols, we trust our idols, and in return we seek comfort from our idols. We seek security, we seek hope from our idols. We trust that they will save us. Perhaps another word for idols in our society is the word addictions. I've got a book on that subject on my bookshelf. It's written by a man called Craig Nacken, who as far as I know isn't a Christian. And yet listen to how he defines addictions. He says, addiction is an illness in which people believe in and seek spiritual connection through objects and behaviors that can only produce temporary sensations. And these repeated vain attempts to connect with the divine produce hopelessness, fear, and grieving that further alienate the addict from spirituality and humanity. The Ten Commandments answer the question of what is an idol. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And if we say, all right, what is a god? The second commandment answers that for us. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. In other words, anything can become an idol. The idol of independence, that I can care for myself and I don't need anyone else's help. 
the idol of romantic love. If I just had somebody to love me and someone in turn whom, whom I could love. Sometimes our marriage partner can become an idol. Uh, if you're expecting your marriage partner to meet your every need, you'd better think again. <laughs> or we make family our idol, children our idols. Religion can be an idol. Many people only want Jesus for healthy relationships, a guilt-free life, and respectable behavior. That's not holiness. It's idolatry in disguise. Anything can become an idol. And notice that many of those things are good things. They are good things. But idolatry takes place when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. An idol is something that replaces God in our lives. Okay, so how do I know if I'm worshiping an idol? How do I know what idols there might be in my life? Well, let's do a quick IQ test, an idolatry quotient test. Firstly, I can discover my idols by looking at my dreams. In other words, the true God of my heart is where my thoughts turn to when there's nothing else demanding my attention. Timothy Keller puts it this way. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What is it that occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as a dream home or a relationship with a particular person? One or two daydreams don't indicate idolatry. Ask rather, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your own heart? Secondly, I can identify my idols by thinking about what are my nightmares? <laughs> what do I dread? What do I worry about? What do I fear might one day be taken from me? What is it that if I lost it, I would feel my life to be over? Thirdly, I can discover my idols by examining my wallet. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's the biggest item in my monthly budget? Where do I spend most of my money? And fourthly, I can discover my idols by examining my uncontrollable emotions, or what I call uncontrollable emotions. I experience anger when something I want is blocked. What is it that makes me angry? What makes me disappointed? I feel that I failed because I haven't achieved a particular goal. Maybe I'm overworked and driving myself into the ground because I feel I must have this thing to be fulfilled and to be significant. That's how we identify our idols. But let's ask a third question, very important. What's wrong with idols? What's the problem with idolatry? Isn't choosing something instead of God just a mistake? Well, I don't think so. In verse 19, the Bible calls an idol a detestable thing or literally an abomination. So God takes this pretty seriously. But why? Well, in a nutshell, because there is one God and idols are not him. Have a look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. 
Now, God doesn't say this because he's threatened by other gods in our lives. God doesn't say this because he's an arrogant despot. He's not like the wicked queen, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all. He's, he's not on an ego trip. He, he says this as a statement of fact. I am God, and there is no one else. And this statement isn't there for God's benefit. It's there for my benefit. You see, an idol cannot save me. Look at verse 9 to 11 again. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. So resting and relying on my beauty or on my intelligence resting and relying on sex, or resting and relying on power, or resting and relying on riches, that's just as dangerous as a climber without a rope reaching for a piece of crumbling granite. That's how dangerous it is. They cannot ultimately save. And sometimes we discover this when you're lying on a hospital bed facing major surgery you suddenly discover that while your medical aid may book you a place in the theater, ultimately, your medical aid, your riches, your intelligence, your lawyer, none of that will guarantee that you're going to get through this in one piece. Our idols cannot save. Not only do idols not save, they often mislead and even destroy. In verse 20, Isaiah says, a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? The very thing that he trusted to save him actually leads him astray and destroys him. And sometimes we discover that too, don't we? I remember once reading an interview with Billy Ray Cyrus. Uh, Billy Ray Cyrus is a country and western singer who gave us that delightful song, My Achy Breaky Heart. Do you remember that one? I remember hearing about two men who were about to be shot, and they said, do you have any last requests? And the one guy said, I want to listen to my achy, breaky heart. And they said to the other guy, what's your request? He says, I want to be shot first. <laughs> but besides that, I'm sure he's a very nice uh, country singer. <laughs> he's also famous for having a daughter called Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus is now a very troubled young adult, but a few years ago, she was a delightful teenage actress, uh, who played Hannah Montana in the television series, Hannah Montana. At the time, having his daughter become famous and rich and good-looking seemed like a good idea. But in this interview, uh, Billy Ray Cyrus spoke about how he felt he was losing control of his daughter, how he felt she was heading down a bad road due to fame and money. He felt that fame and fortune had led to his own divorce, the family breakup. Let me read you just part of the interview. Uh, the interviewer asked him, do you see the show as a big part of what has made things not work in your family? And Cyrus replied, oh, it's huge. It destroyed my family. I'll tell you right now, the show destroyed my family. Do you wish Hannah Montana had never happened? I hate to say it, but yes, I do. Yeah, I'd take it back in a second for my family to be here and just be everybody okay, safe and sound and happy and normal, would have been fantastic. 
Yeah, I'd erase it all in a second if I could. You think this is a chance to make family entertainment, bring families together, and look how it's turned out. A good thing became an ultimate thing, which in turn became a deadly thing. Not only can idols not save us, they often destroy us. And how many people have got to the end of their lives and climbed the corporate ladder and got to the very top only to discover they've been leaning the ladder against the wrong wall? Well, let's ask ourselves a final question this morning. What do we do about idols? How do we get rid of idols in our lives? Well, firstly, it helps to identify them, and hopefully we've done some of that this morning. Uh, Perhaps it would be good to go away this afternoon and ask some of those questions we looked at earlier. You know, what are my dreams? What are my nightmares? Where is my finance going into? What is it that I fear the most? So just to use those questions before God to identify our idols. And secondly, we can repent of those idols. We can confess them to God and tell him that we're sorry, ask his help in getting rid of them. Now, those two things are right and good, and dealing with idols is no less than those two things, but actually it's far more than just identifying and confessing. Have a look at the second part of verse 22. God says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. That is the heart of this passage. In fact, this is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And returning to God involves two things. Firstly, it means recognizing who he is. Verse 2, this is what the Lord says, he who made you, he who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Now, he is my creator, the one who knit me together in my mother's womb. Not only that, but as we've seen, he alone is God. Verse 6 again, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Interesting, God says in these verses, I am the first and the last. And it's so interesting in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, four times that title, the first and the last, is applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the New Testament writers see Jesus as being Yahweh, come in the flesh. In the very last page of the Bible, we read Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so returning to God means recognizing the incomparable beauty and power and wisdom of Jesus. I find the help, the strength, the wisdom in no one else. Think of the Apostle Peter, uh, who when some of Jesus' disciples were leaving him, uh, Jesus turned to the disciples and said, do you want to leave me as well? And Peter said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
And this means I can take anything to Jesus. I can ask him practical things like which medical aid to get next year or where I left my car keys or how best to interact with a difficult person in my life. Because as Paul tells me, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And secondly, returning to God involves recognizing who he is and it involves remembering all he has done. Verse 22, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Now, for the Israelites, this meant that God was going to lead them out of Babylon, bringing them back into Israel and help them rebuild the city. He was going to start afresh with them. But this means so much more to those of us who live this side of the cross. We have been redeemed. In other words, set free by the payment of a price. And in the words of the Apostle Peter, we know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that we were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so the way to get rid of idols from our life isn't simply to uproot them, because that leaves a vacuum that we'll, we'll just end up replacing with another idol. The way to get rid of idols is to displace them with more of Jesus, to recognize who he truly is and what he's done. But not just to recognize or remember, but to celebrate and rejoice and delight in who he is and what he's done. Look at verse 22 again. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Timothy Keller says, this means appreciation, rejoicing, and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality in prayer, Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. That is what will replace the idols of your heart. The New Testament says the same thing. At the very end of his first letter to the churches in Asia, the Apostle John says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And then in the verse before that, he tells us how we keep ourselves from idols. He says, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and he is eternal life. Not just life when we die, but life in all its fullness now. And so we keep ourselves from idols by reminding ourselves that Jesus is the true God and in him alone is life, eternal life, life in all its fullness. Now I guess that this concept of delighting in Jesus and celebrating him and rejoicing in who he is and what he's done is, is quite a difficult one because it's not something that can be reduced to a few, a few practical steps. I think it means opening up my entire life to Jesus, uh, consulting him on the various decisions that I make through the day, uh, meeting together with his people to worship him, spending a few minutes at the beginning of the day reading his word and praying to him, 
spending a few moments at the end of the day, just reviewing the day, uh, asking him for his forgiveness where that's necessary, asking him to, to bless the work of my hands during that day. Recently, I've found that, that playing worship music for myself helps me to truly delight in him. I think, I think St. Augustine put it best when he wrote, Lord, you've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Or as uh, John Piper puts it in one of his little catchphrases, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So just one last point before we close. Um, In verse 21, God says to Israel and to us, remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I've made you. You're my servant, O Israel. I'll not forget you. You see, the Israelites thought that they were being ever so sophisticated by leaving the God of Israel and going after these Babylonian gods. I mean, there were real gods. They were gods of power. Those were gods that you could see. This is much better than Yahweh. And often, I think, we think we're too sophisticated for the God of the Bible. We've moved on. We can rely on the assured results of scientific and economic research and practice. We rely on what is practical and tangible and expedient. But actually, serving idols doesn't make us more human, more intelligent. In leaving God for idols, we become less human. Because God reminds us here that we're his creation and we were made for better things than worthless idols. He says to us, you are my servant. In other words, we have a higher calling. I don't go after idols because they're wrong, although they are. I don't go after idols because it's not worthy of a child of the king. When he was an old man, Malcolm Muggridge, uh, the Fleet Street journalist, wrote this. He said, when I look back on my life nowadays, what strikes me most forcibly about it is that what seemed at the time most significant and seductive seems now most futile and absurd. For instance, success in all of its various guises, being known and being praised, ostensible pleasures like acquiring money or seducing women, In retrospect, all these exercises in self-gratification seem pure fantasy, what Pascal called licking the earth. As an old man, he looked at all of his achievements and said, all I've got is a mouthful of dirt. In the little book of Jonah in the Old Testament, we have Jonah's insightful comment on idols. He says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, we're wandering around in the dirt, playing with mud, the mud of sex and uh, idolatry and money, when all the time God is offering us a free holiday at the seaside. We are too easily satisfied, he said. We forfeit the grace that could have been ours. God said, I had great plans for you. I had great things that I wanted you to do. And all you were doing was messing around with these idols. Uh, 
I want you to know I battled a little bit with the structure of this morning's sermon. I always like to have a structure for my sermon, particularly point number two, because I said that in a nutshell it said there is uh, one God and idols are not Him. But if you wanted to expand that point in the light of all that we've said, uh, you could put it this way. Idols are wrong because of who God is. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Idols are wrong because of who idols are. The things they treasure are worthless. And idols are wrong because of who we are. You are my servant. I have made you. And if you wanted to summarize all of those points, you could do uh, no worse than turning back a chapter to Isaiah 43 and the first few verses of that chapter. Because there God says, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. Those are the first two points. And here's the third. This is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Those are God's words to us. Why then would I exchange the glory of the immortal God for mere idols?